There's a sentence early on in the big book that says words to the effect that our very life depend upon the constant thought of others and how we may best help them. And it's not just that sentence. That is the heart of the book. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings, my friends, from deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of Mr. Don M. that you heard from Louisville, Kentucky on the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment but first things first this episode right here right now is brought to you by sponsored by if you will michelle and vivian and trudy and david and gerhard do you happen to know what vivian and michelle and trudy and david and gerhard did well let me fill you in they went to our website, SilverSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow PayPal tab and they made a, a contribution. Thank you so much, Michelle and Vivian and Trudy and David and Gerhard. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's. I, John M., just another bozo on the bus, will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored, and you can't see me right now, but I'm doing little namaste hands and bending down like a, a, a greeting, whatever you want to call that. Anyway, I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table and let's get started. No matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table to all and we're glad you showed up with us. All right. What do I want to talk to you about today? I think we're going to go right into the episode. I will mention this hill. And we have been getting many um, submissions, listener contributions is actually what we call them on the website, from Ewans. You all out there, you fantastic listeners, have been submitting 
blogs, posts, uh, summaries, whatever you want to call them. And we're putting them on the website and uh, uh, getting some good traction there. I just absolutely love that people are putting those out there. If you, well, we're putting them out there, but people are submitting their contribution to the uh, to us. And uh, actually, the lovely Mrs. M is posting them out there, if you want to know the truth. I have nothing to do with it. But she's putting some great stuff out there on the website that she created, the lovely Mrs. M, that is. And uh, it's just great. I, I love it. So if you are one of those folks who likes to read about uh, read blogs and and you like to read summaries and about the episodes well you can go out there not only can you see these summaries from the listeners that they have been contributing but you can also see the transcripts we have uh, probably four or five transcripts from the last four or five episodes that we've got on the websites now and you can read through those if you need to or want to if you are not in the super secret Facebook group, would just go to Facebook, look up Sober Speak Secret Facebook group, and you will find us there. Now you can own you cannot see who is in the group. You must submit a I don't know, what do you call it? A little doodad where you gotta fill it out and say, can I get into the group? Like I said, the bar is very low. Um and to get in there. So it is an an anonymous group, but if you fill out a submission, you can get in there and you can be around some like-minded individuals and we're having a great time within the uh Facebook group. In fact, I'm gonna read a couple of posts that I saw recently uh, during listener feedback at the end of this episode. But nonetheless, now on to Mr. Don M. from Louisville, Kentucky. In fact, we uh, we we talk about this on the beginning of the episode. Excuse me, episode. Exactly how to pronounce is not Louisville, and I don't believe it's Louisville either. I believe it is. If I remember right, I could be wrong here. Louisville and uh, Don <laughs> teaches us how to pronounce that. We are calling this episode this episode courtesy and persistence. Don M has been sober since April 9th of 1981. In fact, he just celebrated 40 years of continuous sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is fantastic. Don is a former, catch this, criminal defense attorney. Yes, he was a criminal defense attorney. Uh, worked with many of us, if you know what I mean, during his time as a defense attorney. Uh, and he spent time in not one, not two, not three asylums, but 17 asylums. And he'll talk about that. Um, and obviously, from the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about courtesy and persistence quite a bit. Don says that the, quote, core gift, unquote, that he was given in the beginning was to follow instructions. And for the first time in his life, he followed those instructions in Alcoholics Anonymous. This episode is full of truths. And I will be going back and listening to this one again. I present to you folks, Don M. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy Don M. 
Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Don M. And Don M and I ran across each other through a, well, actually a couple of acquaintances. One of them is Tim H., uh, who I believe you sponsor. Is that correct? That is correct. And also Amy is the one who, uh, Amy SD or Amy D, she is the one who originally referred me over to you. And I believe all of you live in the Louisville, Kentucky area. Is that right? We do indeed. They live in Louisville. Louisville. Am I, <laughs> what did I say? Louisville? You said Louisville, and uh, which is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> we, we tend to slur it out Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you ever see any of those Louisville sluggers around the uh, town? Oh, for uh, many, many years, I, I looked uh, out my office window at the uh, Hillary Bradsby home office where they have a 130 foot tall baseball bat in front of it. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. Um, okay, so why don't we go ahead and start by just go ahead, uh, uh, Don, introduce yourself. Uh, we already know where you live, uh, and but give people your sobriety date, if you will. Well, my name's Don, and I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is April 9th of 1981. Well, that's a little while, Don. Is that, am I right? Is that right at 40 years? I have celebrated 40 years last month. John. That is fantastic. Well, God bless you and uh, thank you for your service to AA. I, I know you've, um, anyway, I know that you have spoken at many conferences. My guess is you've done much more than that, but uh, thank you so much for your service throughout the years, my friend. Well, thank you, and thank you for your service. As I had mentioned to you, a, a young lady who gets a, a daily message that I send around had called me or texted me last night how very much your podcast uh, have enhanced her sobriety. Oh. And uh, so I thank you, John, for your service. Oh, that's very nice. That's good to hear. Uh, she could hear uh, Tim uh, H. on there now. Uh, we just recently released him. And so um, my guess is she knows him. Is that right? Well, no, no I don't know the lady. She just, uh, uh, lots of people wind up with my daily text. and uh, but, but she had uh, uh, listened to Tim's podcast. Uh, Great. That, that's what triggered her to text me because she didn't know that that Don M was the Don M that generated the other. So. Oh, wow. And it, so, it so and let me ask you about that real quick. So you have a like, is it like a daily text that you send out? I, I do. Um, it, it's all an accident, John. Um, six or seven years ago, um, four or five close AA friends of mine and I decided that we would create a little group text. And the purpose was to prod one another and be accountable for actually doing our morning prayer and meditation routine. Mm -hmm. And um, people began to ask for the comments that I made. And uh, 
it just grew like topsy. And uh, I have, I don't know where, where it goes. I know I send it directly to about 600 people, but I have people who send it to over 100 people. Uh, so wow. I do, do know that it's wound up in Brazil, Germany, Poland, Iran, Russia. <laughs> okay, so you send out, so how do you actually send out, a, is it a texting service that you use to do that? No, it's not. I spend almost two hours every night. I send 300 individual texts, and about a third of them are to groups of from two to 10. So there are about 600 people who receive it directly. Wow. Uh, and I have considered um, posting it on a website, but every time I do, I get a series of texts from People saying things like, man, just getting these spontaneously on my phone is so important to me. Wow. And uh, I've come to look at it, but by the time you get ready to go to an AA meeting and get there a little early and stay a little while and get home, it takes a couple hours. So I look at it um, as the same investment of time at the meeting and and has two great, great uh, benefits for me. One is that it requires me, whether I feel like it, whether I want to or not, it requires me to think about some spiritual principle in enough depth to try to articulate it to be helpful to someone else. And the second thing is, whereas there are many strangers who get it directly from me now, just people who have requested that I've you know, never met. Um, there are also hundreds of people that I know. So every time I hit the name, I get to think of that person. Oh, wow. And it's just a marvelous thing. Uh, wow. And, uh, and it, truly, it all happened by accident. I, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm truly almost paranoid. I will not send it to someone who has not asked for it, and I will not ask someone if they want it. Right. Uh, it, uh, um, but it, it's been a, a huge blessing in my life. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, this uh, podcast that I do. It was like an accident. Uh, I'm not going to go through that in entire story, but it is weird how things just take on a life of their own uh, and you never expect things to go to a certain level. And then you notice, wow, how did I get here? Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're able to do that. I've never planned it. And it's shocking to me that I, I think I probably reach more people with that than I do with talks. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really cool to know. All right. Well, let's talk about Don M. a little bit. Okay. Uh, so did you grow up there in Kentucky? I grew up in Kentucky, but not in Louisville. I, I grew up on a tobacco farm um, 200 miles southwest of Louisville on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. So how do you remember your childhood? Is it, do you, was it uh, challenging? Good? You know, just describe that to me a little. 
Well, I, I'll have to give you two versions of that, John, because I had one childhood before I got sober and quite a different one afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> right. The memories start <laughs> to change. Well, because my, my capacity for self-delusion is astounding. And, uh, <laughs> until I got sober, I would have passed a lie detector test when I told you the really interesting and romantic saga about my early struggles and my subsequent rise to power. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it was all about how by my iron will and my sterling intellect, I had pulled myself up by the bootstraps from the depths of poverty to those staggering heights I'd reached in life. And uh, I don't think I was truly sober a week until I realized, man, what a load of baloney. Uh, We weren't even poor. (laughs) <laughs> we weren't anywhere close to her. Well, we were actually better off than anybody else in the community. And of course, the staggering heights I thought I'd reached were a great deal more staggering than they were high. Mm-hmm. What was really going on the first 12, 13 years was my obsession with myself through uh, the big book. says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles and since I've been sober, for me, that is my ego disorder. And it's been stuck to my nose every time my eyes have come open for 77 years now. And uh, I hear that. You said it's your, the selfishness was your ego disorder. Is it what you called it? Yes. I like that. That's a great way to phrase that. Uh Talk to me a little bit about, uh, I've heard you before talk about getting me, quote, in in air quotes, me out of the way. What do you mean by that, getting me out of the way? Well, first, it's something that I'm not capable of doing, getting me out of the way. I have to allow God to get me out of the way. And I do that by following simple directions and praying to give my entire interest, attention, and love to whomever um, is in front of me and seeking to love, comfort, and understand other people rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by them. And if I run those prayers through my head enough, finally the miracle happens and I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say next and how it's going to sound and what you think of me and what I might be able to get out of the situation. I'm truly thinking about you. And when that happens, I can actually feel uh, as if it were an atmospheric shift in the room wherever I am. Everything changes when I make it about you rather than me. And when I do that, when I do the footwork, God gets me out of the way temporarily. So I am soaking this in as you're as you're talking about it, and so I want to I want to kind of repeat this uh, mainly for me. So this helps me to kind of remember. You said whenever I'm focusing on you, somebody else, for you, there's kind of an atmospheric shift in the room where you can feel things uh, uh, adjusting accordingly, right? Is that, is that what you said? Everything changes. It's like 
magic dust has been sprinkled on the encounter. And, you know, Don, I've had, uh, and I agree with you, and I've had very similar situations, but I also like that second part that you followed up with and that, you know, when I do that, it occurs, but then, um, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, I forgot exactly how you said it, but history repeats itself. In other words, I go back to being the selfish guy that I was. And you, you would think, right, that if I've had that type of experience over and over, I would get up every day and just be excited to go help somebody else be the first thing on my mind. But I have to come back and relive that or try to rework it or go through the process on a daily basis. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would agree with that. And I would also uh, say that it's much more than a daily basis for me. I have to start over sometimes 50 to 100 times a day. And that's perfectly fine. And, And over the years, I have concluded that persistence is one of the two most underrated and under-discussed of all spiritual characteristics. Persistence, right? The the other one is courtesy. Persistence and courtesy. Oh, you are my man. I am liking you so much, Don. (laughs) So then that's something, you know, you always hear about the 12 principles and all that sort of stuff. But like you said, these are not ones that are talked about as much. So talk to me about that, both persistence and courtesy. What do you mean? Oh, I'd love to do too. They are are two of the watchwords of my life. Uh, One thing uh, about courtesy. I concluded a long time ago that it is absolutely impossible for me to be spiritual and discourteous simultaneously. <laughs> they cannot coexist. Uh, and, and, and if I am unfailingly courteous, I get into almost no conflict with anybody about anything. And if I'm unfailingly courteous, it helps me maintain a demeanor that makes people comfortable talking with me. We're not going to get a whole lot of opportunities to help people if our demeanor, if the message we are carrying, and we all carry a message of some kind, all time, if the message we are carrying is don't bother me, I'm busy, or something like that. Uh, and My sweet wife and I have been married 30 years with no intervening separations or divorces. (laughs) (laughs) Given my history prior to that is a true miracle. And and we never argue. And one of the big basics of that, other than not keeping score, period, is unfailing courtesy on both our parts. And it is such a shame, John, that so often it's easier for us to be courteous to strangers than it is to the people we live with and are the very closest to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced that every little sarcastic barb or snide remark, even when it's flying under the flag of humor, leaves a mark. And I think they build up. Uh, and if I'm unfailingly courteous, 
I'm way down the road to seeking to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comfort, and understood. Let me take a little break here. We will be continuing our conversation with Don M. from Louisville. Oh, my goodness. Louisville. Louisville. In just a moment. You got it. Louisville. In just a moment. Uh, but just a reminder, you are listening to Silver Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.silverspeak.com. Uh, you can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Silver Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, or organization or institution we do not wish to engage in any controversy neither endorse nor oppose any causes all right now back to mr don m all right so anything else you want to say about courtesy before we go on to persistence there um no just that uh want to emphasize that if i there's no reason for me to ever be discourteous uh I've worked with many alcoholics in the last 40 years. I've been a criminal defense lawyer for 53 years. So I have to tell people unpleasant things, but I can do it in a courteous manner. And when I do, it just almost completely eliminates conflict from my life. Okay, so I, I want to get to the persistence piece because I really like that as well. But you okay. just brought up something there that uh, is very intriguing, and I'm sure you get asked about this. You are a criminal defense lawyer. I'm sure you deal with people like me and you and all of us in our organization, in our society, I should say, on a consistent basis. How has that been being a criminal defense lawyer in Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, first, I had a 10-year, quite successful, materially, criminal defense lawyer uh, career before I got sober. And after I got, I had lost my law license, actually, along with losing absolutely everything else and uh, was out of practice for five years and uh, wound up living without an address for a year. But by the grace truly of God, and as a byproduct of steps eight and nine, I got my law license back. And I had gotten sober in Nashville, Tennessee, and lived there for 21 months after getting sober. And if I could have found a minimum wage job in Nashville, I would not have gone back to Louisville to practice law. But I couldn't. And I remember having kind of an angry conversation with God because I thought I knew how to be a successful criminal defense lawyer. And it didn't have a thing in the world to do with humility, love, all those things, any spiritual principles. So my angry conversation was all I got after I fall on my face on this you just show me where, where, where we go from there. Uh, <clears throat> but I didn't have a choice because I knew if I didn't apply the principles in my entire life, because I, I had gotten it 
that I'm not a guy that will ever be able to fit recovery into his life. I have to fit my life into recovery. And it turned out that God is so much better lawyer than I. I have been much more successful uh, by uh, praying to seek to love, comfort, and understand people who I am cross-examining, praying to seek to love, comfort, understand juries on death penalty cases, uh, and appellate judges on appeal. Uh, it, it just changes everything. And then I learned a great truth. The quiet, loving truth is the loudest sound on earth, in or outside of courtroom. Say that the quiet, again. The quiet, loving truth is the loudest sound on earth, in or out of a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And the quiet, loving truth carries so much power with it. Uh, and I thought it would be impossible to apply these principles and still be the zealous advocate that I'd always been. But I, I, I think I could give you a lot of prosecutors in Louisville who would uh, would vouch that I've been a pretty darn zealous advocate while applying principles, spiritual principles, uh, in the last forty years. So this brings up a question. You know, you always see this on TV, right? And I'm not saying real life is like what you see on TV. You know, for some of the cases, you know, twenty twenty or forty eight hours or whatever it is, and. And these people, many times, the criminal defense lawyers are representing somebody that most people around them know are guilty of whatever they have done, yet it is the job of the criminal defense attorney to, uh, you know, defend them. And that's their, that's their job, you know, and they're just doing their job. And I had no idea where we were going to go here today, but, you know, I just kind of ask questions as they come to my head. How do you, um, I'm sure you've been in situations like that. How do you handle things like that? Well, the first 10 years I practiced law was a little difficult because back then I thought I was big enough to win and lose cases. But um, I I don't have a problem with it. If I were, If I were uh, an emergency room physician and a serial child molester or serial killer were brought in with an appendix about to burst or something that needed to be treated, it would not be my job to make a social decision as to whether this person ought to live or not. It would be my job to take out the appendix. And the system of justice is a huge machine of which I'm a little tiny part. And my job is the quiet, loving, honest, ethical, and zealous protection of my client's rights. And that is my job. And I don't win cases or lose cases. I just do my little job. Great. 
Okay, so let's go back to the persistence piece because I love I, I love that idea. You know, I and I guess one of the reasons I love it is because I've pretty much done, and you don't know this, but I've been sober by the grace of God since 1989, right? And oh, I've pretty much done everything wrong that you could do in sobriety, right? I've made all the mistakes and, you know, I have had my seat in the fallibility chair many, many times. That being said, the one thing that I have done that I've been persistent or consistent about is coming back to meetings and staying part of the program. So when you say persistence, what does that mean to you? Well, when I came finally to the to uh, sobriety and to a recovery program, um, I came kicking and screaming, and uh, I was mainly screaming because uh, of the existence of, of the higher power aspect of that particular particular program. But by changing my behavior, um, my behavior changed my thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and I came to believe, and faith found me. But, and I'm, I'm addressing your question, I became very worried because I would lose it. I, I would take a couple of steps in the right direction, and I'd get knocked over by some form of self and have to get up and dust myself off and say, Mom, Dad, I fouled up again, stumble another couple of steps in the right direction and knocked over again. And that truly would happen and sometimes still happens 50 or 100 times a day. And I thought each time that happened, it was an interruption of my spiritual journey. But I've come to learn that that process of persisting is the only spiritual journey of which I'm capable. And my God, my higher power, seems to be just fine with my persisting, just starting over and starting over. See, there's a part of me that if I were going to identify anything as an actual devil, <laughs> it would be this. That's the part of me that tells me every day in big things and small things that I have screwed up so badly that there is no use, that there's no longer a next right stitch, that there's no longer a God's will. And that thing is a lethal lie. There's a next right thing in the middle of robbing a bank. Now, I probably shouldn't have gotten myself in the position of robbing the bank, <laughs> but I can't get in a position where there's not a next right thing. And I have found my God. I was scared in early sobriety that uh, I was on some sort of probation and would exhaust God's forgiveness. But I found God's forgiveness inexhaustible. Mm. and. There have been no really big successes in any area of my life, professional, personal, spiritual, 
that have not involved at some point in the process feeling like I'd screwed up so bad that it was no use <laughs> and it was going to be a disaster. And what I wanted to do was, well, was stick my head in the sand and just let it all go and not persist. But that persistence is what it's about. Persisting is going on. Which, excuse me, but I, uh, may I tell you a little something that's been important to me that's of course. connected with that really. Go right ahead. Many years ago, I ran into a, a fellow who was dry uh, for 20 years, but had gotten in all sorts of problems uh, uh, other than drinking. Uh, and was forced to live underground in Las Vegas. And he was making his living playing poker and had done it very successfully for seven or eight years. And I was interested because I'd known a few people who had tried that and they had flamed out spectacularly. So I, I asked him, well, what's the secret? How do you, how does, how's it work for you? What makes you succeed? And he says, real simple, Don. It has nothing to do with the good hands. Any idiot can play the good hands. At the end of the day, whether I succeed or fail would depend on what I do with the very worst hands I am dealt. Mm. And I have found that to be universally true in my life. The ones I don't even want to think about, what I do with those. Will determine ultimately success or failure. Ah, oh, that's right. Yeah, the good hands uh, and dealing with the bad hands. Absolutely love it. I, I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about your marriage to your bride. I believe it's a little. It's thirty years now. Is that correct? Thirty years. Uh -huh. Thirty years, which is great. But then you kind of made a uh, kind of an offhand reference to where that is a miracle for your life. So. <laughs> Can you kind of, and by the way, you know, as you know, I've interviewed Tim and Tim was an, an incredible story about him with his wife and I, getting married four times, divorced three times or vice versa, whatever that was. And uh, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. But it sounds to me the way you, way you described it and the reference you made, you may have had an issue at one point with a long-term commitment. Am I right about that? <laughs> Well, let me put it this way. I have never begun to sponsor anyone without telling them up front that for me to give advice on relationships ought to be a felony. <laughs> <laughs> but now you can, because you've got the 30 years. You've got some skins on the wall now. <laughs> well... But it, it was, and <laughs> this is not very sophisticated, but I've often said that prior to Sharon, which includes my first nine years sober, um, prior to Sharon, what would be called a relationship life, uh, what passed for that in me was a whole lot closer to an ongoing fight in a brothel than it was any kind of sane relationship life. 
All right. So, okay. And also, and I got you a little, uh, I went, I, and I do this often, you know, we were kind of going chronological in the in the beginning and I kind of got you a little off that. So take me back. So we went over the first like, you know, 12, 13 years of your life. And then, um, so what age did you actually make it into Alcoholics Anonymous? So can you kind of go through that period for me in a real brief fashion? Uh, sure. Drunk the first time at 12, 13, did the magic for me. Um, I was always blessed with being, you know, having some academic gifts. Uh, so despite the fact that I drank alcoholically and regularly from the first time I got drunk, uh, as a geographic change, I became an early admission student in college with an academic scholarship and uh, at 16, and uh, it was out finishing high school, and I, I, uh, my reaction to that I stayed so drunk that I lost all concept of day and night and blew the scholarship, but then worked full-time, drank full-time, went to school full-time, uh, and uh, for seven and a half years and finished undergraduate in law school. Uh, and began practicing law um, in 1968. My daughter, who was my only child for over 20 years, was born that same spring. Little law firm of nine or ten guys built up around myself, and I, I practiced interstate criminal defense law at a very, very high level. Um, I intellectually knew I was an alcoholic by the time I was 15. Uh, but uh, my mistake was I thought I could live with it. I knew it was going to be inconvenient, kind of like having a bad arm or a bad leg. And I certainly knew I'd die a lot earlier than I would otherwise. But my God, at that age, who wants to live to be 30 or 35 year old? <laughs> so, oh, you're no good to take care of to yourself or anybody else. Uh, and uh, I had a I got full of uh, scotch vodka and four outside issues uh, February 10th, 78, and drove Corvette off the road and over 120 horrible things to my body. Um, and I uh, didn't get back into practice law for five years. Uh, in the two and a half years before I got sober, I was uh, uh, lost everything. The guys had to kick me out of the law firm I'd founded. In the state of Kentucky, took my law license, uh, didn't lay eyes on or have any contact with my only child for over three years, lived without an address for a year, uh, didn't sleep on the street, but only because I could always get somebody to take me in. It was often strangers. I was in some sort of silence that said 18 times that I remember. I've always suspected there were a couple more in two and a half years, and I wound up at asylum number 17 in the fall of 1980, six months before I got sober in Nashville, Tennessee. And I stayed in Nashville, Tennessee until January of 1983. First six months I was there, I didn't stay straight, but it got better. Went to an awful lot of AA meetings, most of them at a clubhouse there called the 202 Club. There were also um, when I was able between meetings, I would go to, or between drunks and asylums, I would go 
to a lot, a lot of AA meetings, and a good half of those 18 asylums had treatment programs based on the 12 steps. So I had a head full of information. And I had absolutely accepted step one. I absolutely knew that I was in a humanly hopeless position with regard to my alcoholism. And to me, anything short of that is not step one. Uh, But the idea of step two, that some sort of metaphysical power greater than myself was the only way around this human hopeless humanly hopeless condition, it just, it, it, got, it made the little hair stand up on the back of my neck. And people talking about higher power instead of God made me even madder because I knew what they were doing. They were trying to backdoor me on that God crap. So that kept running me out of the AA. And finally, uh, late March 81, I got on my most recent drunk and I had no idea why I shook it out. By that time, my physical addiction to alcohol was was such that once I started drinking, I had just physically lost the ability to stop. Something had to knock me off it. And and once it did, it took three or four days for me to be physically able to sit up in a chair. But I didn't know why I wasn't going to get some Listerine and drinking it and, and getting some relief, but I didn't. And a loving God that I never asked for anything or ever acknowledged. I had spent my first 37 years as an evangelical agnostic. It was part of my part of my mission to disabuse the superstitious of their superstitions. But in April of 81, a loving God that uh, and see, I knew the little part of me that wanted to live, knew that the only chance I had of living was to get that bill was to get AA. And I thought in order to get it, I had to change my thoughts, feelings, beliefs to make them more like it looked like to me the folks in the program thought, felt, and believed. And as best I could in the shape I was in, I tried everything. Well, I shook it out and I stumbled back to the door of that clubhouse in Nashville about a week after my most recent drink when I was able to stumble. And, uh, I didn't think they'd let me in. I had passed out in their meetings and had to be bodily carried out. Uh, they'd caught me in their men's room with illegal outside issues, and they had warned the people they sponsored to stay away from me, that I was losing, was going to die. About two months before I got sober, I was walking through that clubhouse, and uh, I, I'm vertically challenged. And a big old boy about six, or not about, he was six five. Joe's been dead many years. Walked up, looked down at me, way down, and, and said, uh, Don, I'm beginning to think you really are too intelligent for this program. And I thought he was giving me a compliment. <laughs> My knee jerk reaction was, well, thank God they finally figured out who they're dealing with. That's right. But but Joe went on and it saved my life. He said, and that's a shame, Don, because we have never had anybody too dumb for this deal. And we bury you buttholes all time. And that truly felt like an icy hand closing over something inside me. 
And I'm so grateful that ICM's never completely gone away. You let me get a couple of stitches out and wham, I'm back. They did let me in. They said, come on in, Don, you're keeping us sober. And I, and I said, will you tell me one more time what I need to do if I want to be a message? Sure, don't drink, don't take, don't go to meetings. See, my mind hadn't changed about anything. I still had that same insane mixture of egomania and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. One minute a day wouldn't work for me because I was so special and brilliant and complex. And the next minute it wouldn't work for me because I was so bad. Parts of me just missing. Uh, and <clears throat> I had no idea why I was going to all those meetings. I went to over 150 of them for 60 days. So I didn't want to go to a single one of them for any legitimate reason. It was still clear to me that the folks in AA were religious fanatics. And my brain was still assuring me that what we needed to do was get our head out of the sand, get our butt back to Louisville, maybe get a law license, money, big car, good-looking woman, just be somebody for God's sake. But part of my gift was being able to turn around in my brain and say, yeah, no, this new deal of their group therapy sessions, they call meetings and their myth of a higher power can't possibly work in our unique situation. But we're just out of options. We're going to go anyway. And the core gift, John, was this, and it remains with me today. For the and I, and I didn't. I only knew anything had changed by looking in the rearview mirror. Weeks, months, sometimes years later. For the first time in my life, I began voluntarily following suggestions about how to run my life. Even though I didn't understand them, I didn't agree with them, I didn't think they would work, and I certainly did not want to do it. And that behaving better than the old crazy picture show in my head is the only reason on earth that I'm here with you instead of having been rotting in a pauper's grave for about 40 years. You see, I thought for those AA meetings to work first, I had to believe it would work, which I did not. Second, I thought it had to feel like it was working while it was working, which it did not. And third, I thought I had to be able to see the causal relationship of A causing B, which I could not and still cannot and no longer give up. It turned out what I needed to do at that limited time was get my butt to meeting after meeting and let my old sick brain and skull get dragged in there behind it. Then they told me if I wanted to live, I was going to read the big book. And I explained I'd read it two or three times, and they explained to me that they were aware of that, that I had been quoting it to them while I'd been dying. <laughs> They explained to me that the first thing I needed to get straight is the big book is not a philosophy book. There's nothing in there that I can learn or master that will keep me sober for a heartbeat. In fact, they told me that I had had, had enough information about AA and recovery for over two years to stay sober a day at a time the rest of my life without learning one single new piece of information. 
that what was killing me was not what I knew and didn't know. It was what I was doing and not doing. And I began to realize, and I love that word realize. It's a form of the word real, and it's so different than knowing. I began to realize that those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of man that I want to make the ultimate reality have never one time now in 77 years left a footprint on reality. Now, if I abdicate my behavior to them, that behavior leaves a hideous footprint. But in and of themselves, they're just a will of the wisp. They have no power whatsoever. They shift and change and move. The world never judges me on them. I don't think God judges me on them. If God is the kind of entity that will put something involuntarily in our minds and then smack us for having it in our minds, we might as well shut it down and go get drunk because we're screwed anyway. And I don't think God's that way. I think, I, I think the most spiritual I ever get and the most pleasing thing I do to God, for God, is doing that next right thing when every fiber of my being wants to do the opposite. So they said that that was when they explained this little analogy that was, has been so central to my sobriety. They explained that the action that is the first nine steps, which will bring us to a state of recovery, immediately followed by the action, which is steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, that that action is the prescription for alcoholism that it works on alcoholism precisely like an antibiotic works on an infection. If I have an infection, that'll kill me if it's not treated, but will respond to antibiotics. I don't need to understand the origin and nature of my infection. Mm-hmm. I could learn everything there is to know, and if I don't take the pills, I'm dead. doesn't matter. I don't need to understand a thing about how antibiotics work in the human body. I don't need to believe they'll work. I don't need to want to take the pills. That's irrelevant. If I have the infection and I take the pills as directed, I'll get suspended. And they promised me that regardless of what was going on in this crazy picture showing my my head, if I took those actions, that those actions would work on my alcoholism. And that saves my life today. Saved it in 81. Right. So, Don, you have, you uh, genuinely have people listening to you in all four corners of the world here when we release this, right? A lot of them, as you know, when we pray before this, before this starts, uh, you know, we just pray that we can lay down something on a recording that can give people in hope in all four corners of the world. I think you said something to the effect of you pray that, uh, you know, God will put on your lips what needs to be put on your lips to, to, to help people all over the world. With that being said, and to kind of wrap this up, if you were to kind of share your experience, strength, and hope uh, in regards to what do you want people to know out there about what you have experienced in Alcoholics Anonymous and what hopefully they can find as well? There's a sentence early on in the big book 
that says words to the effect that our very lives depend upon the constant thought of others and how we may best help them. And it's not just that sentence. That is the heart of the book. Third step prayer, take away my difficulties. Not so I can be sober and spiritual and happy, but the victory over them will bear witness to those I would help of God's power, love, and way of life. Seventh step prayer. We don't ask God to take away all of our difficulties or all of our character defects. We ask God to take away only the ones which stand in the way of our usefulness to God and our fellows. And we don't even know which ones they are. And steps eight and nine, all practical, right? But if you look on page 77, it says, yeah, we're putting our lives in order, but that is not our real purpose. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves, to be of maximum service to God and those around us. And I have actually found that that is enlightened self-interest. When I stop trying to take care of myself and make myself happy, in the first place, when I try to make myself happy, it never works. It becomes a mess. But when I lay all that aside and I try to seek to love, comfort, and understand other people, and as my hero Chuck C says, to help God's kids do what they need to have done for fun and for free because I want to. God takes care of me in a manner that's unbelievable. From the, the chaos and the misery of my relationship life to the most beautiful 30 years I can imagine with that sweet Sharon and the bar association that I, that I so embarrassed and gave it such a terrible black eye has honored me until it's embarrassing. They <laughs> made me the pro bono lawyer of the year. They've given me the award for professionality and civility. They've made me a master at in of court. They've made me chair of the Citizens for Better Judges. And God's got such a delightful sense of humor because about 15 years ago, my cell phone rang and it was the president of the state bar. And he said, Don, we've got an opening on the ethics committee. <laughs> <laughs> the first 10 years I practiced law, the only people I was more scared of than the state bar ethics committee were the IRS and the FBI. <laughs> uh, and I also want to say this, that all of this has happened purely by persistence. There's been... I don't think there's been a single day that if you had asked me during that day, Don, have you done this deal of thinking of others and doing for them and trying to listen for the divine spark to guide your next action? I call it stitch. The patterns belong to God. I can't understand the patterns. Uh, have you done it well enough? You're doing good. I don't think there would have been a single day that I would have said, I think I might have gotten over the bar today. Every day I would have said, oh, no, 
I got knocked over 50 or 100 times and had to start over. And yet that's what God has done with my life when I'm willing to persist and want to treat God's other children with courtesy and seek to love, comfort, and understand them. You see, if my objective is for me to be sober, spiritual, and happy, I make it through and have a pretty good life. But like Chuck said, it'll be self-robbery because the real joy, the real miracles come when my objective is just to help other people and not to take care of me and leave it to God to take care of me and my own sobriety and happiness <coughs> and successes and spirituality are simply a byproduct of trying to help God's kids do what they need to have done. And it works. It really does. Thanks, John. Oh, that's been fantastic. Uh, you know, I was just thinking, if I was a jury and I was sitting there listening to you in that soft voice that you have, just that smooth voice, I don't think I would convict anybody. <laughs> there have been a few juries who disagreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless you. I really appreciate it. I'm going to read, uh, we always read uh, page 164 from the big book to, to end us up. Uh, uh, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Don M., as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Don, well, let me ask you real quick before I close it out. I know you were like thinking on the front end of this. Well, first of all, this is a podcast, right? I'm used to doing a talk, but I'm not <laughs> sure what this the podcast thing is going to look like. Was the experience pleasant for you? Oh, it was very pleasant. It's a joy to meet you, John, and I'm just really, really grateful that you invited me to to be here and have enjoyed it and uh, hope that somebody somewhere will get something out of it. God bless you, my friend. Once again, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I appreciate you sharing time with me today. Thank you, Don. And I appreciate you, John. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Thank you so much, Don, for your continued service throughout the years to this little organization we call Alcoholics Anonymous. It is so much appreciated. And thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom and your insight with those who listen to the Sober Speak podcast. It is so much appreciated. I know that we talked after this and um, in all likelihood, you will never hear this episode because Don says he never goes back and listens to himself. Uh, but maybe I can get him to listen to this one. Who knows? I hope he does listen in. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. And the first couple of pieces of feedback come from our super secret Facebook group. And by the way, if you are new to this and uh, you are not in the secret Facebook group, just go to Facebook, the Facebook application and look up 
secret Facebook, oh, excuse me, sober speak secret Facebook group. <laughs> There's a lot of S's in there, but nonetheless, and uh, ask if you can be invited, if you can join us, and we will let you in to join us. There's a bunch of like-minded folks in there, and there's a ton, a ton of activity. Uh, there's celebrations of various milestones. There are quotes and quips, and some stuff is funny, some stuff is serious. There's, I think we have Mm, about 1,700 people in there or so. And so we would love to have you in there as well if you would like to join us. But this was actually posted in the Super Secret Facebook group. It said, and this is from Derek. And Derek says, John here, he's talking about here in, in the group, at Sober Speak, renewed my passion for sobriety. His podcast web page and this group reminded me what it takes to keep that which was given so freely to us well put Derek he says so I started another group called sarcastic and sober <laughs> it has been it has a bit of a tongue-in-cheek sarcasm which is how I live I'm looking forward to maybe doing a blog I love this fellowship and I appreciate John's hard work I listen to him every day on my way to work obviously he was posting that for the other members in the group and so I would say if you're out there first of all Derek thank you for posting that and thanks for letting me be a part of your sobriety and if you're out there listening and you want to go check out uh, Derek's uh, sarcastic and sober group uh, within Facebook, go find him. Uh, I looked at it. It, was, it looked really cool. And uh, you just may enjoy it yourself. Now, here's another one that was a little bit more uh, of a serious type of podcast, excuse me, serious type of post within the Facebook group. And this is from Anthony. And Anthony said, I'm struggling to quit drinking, exclamation point, two to three bottles of wine a day, exclamation point. When my mom died one and a half years ago, I started and now seemingly cannot stop. And then he put help in his H-E-L-L-L-L-L-P exclamation point. I'm drunk as ever as I type this. All right, so we get a lot of posts in the the Facebook group, uh, but I can tell you that this one brought a lot of uh, comments, uh, posts, a lot of uh, people uh, offering up assistance. Uh, it just kind of, what do they call it? Went viral or whatever the case may be. And uh, Anthony read through all of them, I could tell. And then he had a follow-up post in a couple days. He, uh, Quite honestly, there were two or three follow-up posts in the meantime, and I think this was the last one I saw. And he says, another meeting in 48 hours without alcohol. Thank you. And he's talking to all the people that were posting. He's talking to them. Thank you for bearing with me and cheering me on. Last night, it was difficult to fight off the urges, but it was easier than the other times I tried to start my recovery. I found myself looking for excuses, trying to find a way to go out to the store and get wine. 
self-control caught up with me, and I made a good decision to snuggle with my wife and go to sleep instead. Other times when I quit drinking, I hated counting the days and hours, but for some reason this time, it brings me peace to have milestones, however small they are. 48 hours feels like a mountain of accomplishment, to be honest. It might be silly to the non-drinker, but I feel amongst you it is uh, uh, understood, so I thank all of you. I have two... I have two small little girls who love me. My wife and I are still very much in love. They deserve to keep me around. And then he got a lot of comments on that. And you're right, Anthony. They do deserve to have you around. And you deserve sobriety. Um, And I'm so glad that that all those people in the Facebook group could be a part of your journey. Um, Keep us posted, my friend. God bless you. Oh, God, that takes me back. God, that takes me back. Angie Y. writes in, and Angie says, Hey, John, I am Angie Y., an alcoholic from Wisconsin. She says, My sobriety date is 10-22-2016. I ran my own, quote, program for about three and a half years, and I went to my first AA meeting on July 11th, 2020. Since then, I truly have been working a program of recovery. When the pandemic hit, it went from bad to worse, and I decided to try online meetings. That's when I found the Fourth Dimensioners Zoom meeting and Transitions Daily. Your podcasted is listed on Transitions Daily website. Through the meetings, I've met Buddy C. Ah, Buddy C., who you've interviewed on your podcast. Yes, I have. Lots of great stuff, and I wouldn't have found it without the pandemic smiley face hip hip hooray for the pandemic i say i wrote that part or i said that part (laughs) anyway one of my favorite speakers that you've had on the podcast is quote get in the car unquote jenny l like i said my first three and a half years were on my own terms i was miserable I was isolated and just marinating in self-pity and depression. Oh, that is so well put, Angie. Marinating in self-pity and depression. Oh, what a good description. Anyway, um, the episode, uh, this episode, she's talking about the Jenny L. Get in the Car episode, reminded me to, quote, get in the car in all cap letters, get out of self, work with others, go to meetings. God speaks to me through people. And if I choose to, quote, isolate myself, I am choosing to go against God. It is so easy for me to go back to self-pity and isolation, especially since I did that without, without alcohol for so long. But that episode really spoke to me. When I feel that way, get in the damn car and reach out to others, exclamation point. I appreciate your podcast and the service work you are doing. Thank you for letting me share Angie Y. Well, Angie Y., 
the pleasure is all mine. And thank you so much for sharing that. I sent on your message to Jenny L. And she was very appreciative as well. If you're out there, by the way, <clears throat> and you want to send me some communication regarding the speakers, especially, I'm at John, J-O-H-N. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, you know, I could go back and edit that out, but it takes too darn long. But excuse me, and uh, hopefully I'll get through the rest of listener feedback. But nonetheless, uh, if you want to send an email about one of the speakers, especially, I'm at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. David writes in, he says, Hey, John, I was just listening to listener feedback on today's episode, and I wanted to pass on... Uh, to Sarah from Michigan, the paramedic, some first responder specific recovery meetings. One is www.worldwidepeersupport.com. The other is if she is in AIAFF, which is International Association of Firefighters member, we have recovery meetings for our members three days a week. The meeting link, the meeting links can be found on the A, excuse me, IAFF website under quote, behavioral health tab, the behavioral health tab. Both are excellent resources. I hope this finds her and is of some help. David A, a retired firefighter and paramedic. Well, I will send your information on uh, to Sarah from Michigan for sure, David. I appreciate you writing in. Henry writes in and Henry says, hi, I just wanted to say I listened to the lady who wrote in at the end of the last podcast from Australia. It really resonated with me, even though we couldn't be more different. I've always thought I wasn't an alcoholic because I didn't have a physical dependency. Oh yeah, I remember her, Henry. And I didn't get help <clears throat> for that reason, but her story inspired me Thank you. And that's a big part of the reason I read these things, Henry, and I appreciate you writing in. Frances writes in and she says, Hi, John. I am a South African living in Eastern Colorado, and I love your podcast. I listen to podcasts between meetings and usually on the way to my early morning swimming sessions in the summer. I have been in and out of those rooms, in and out of the rooms since 2005, but I've been sober now for over 10 months since Zoom started, and I have a wonderful crowd that supports me from Denver. I am committed to AA. And I just love your hilarious comments and your attempts at Spanish. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much for your service to our fellowship. Regards, Francis. Oh, the reason I'm pausing here is because I'm wondering, is this her last name or is this, you know how people go by like a first name and then a middle name, like Billy Bob or something like that. It looks like it's a middle name, but just to be on the safe side, I'm going to leave it at Francis C. Anyway, thanks for writing in, Francis. 
Last but not least, Christina writes in and she says, Hi, John. I found Sober Speak through searching in podcasts. I live near Atlanta, Georgia. She says, I have a three, I have a little over three years clean and sober. I just got custody, custody back of my eight year old son. I feel trapped in my job. I just got engaged. I am a college student part time. So I'm listening to that, Christina, and thinking, I think most of that is good. <laughs> like anything in life, there's a mixed bag, right? Then she says, I just started listening to Charlie P, and I found it helpful. I haven't really listened to anyone else yet. I just started listening to your podcast. Well, Christina, you got a few more episodes to catch up on, if you would like to, at least. I'd say like 190, almost 200, 195, 196, something like that. Oh, no, no, no. This one is, I think it's 197, if I'm not mistaken, but nonetheless. All right, everybody, at the end of our episode here, uh, I have been for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 weeks, something like that, ending it up with a little... Uh, a ditty, if you will. Uh, these are the slogans that were recorded by a gentleman named Robert Lefevre. And uh, he, wa- I was giving these recordings by a listener named Kamal. And these are the slogans of Alcoholics Anonymous. And these are what I have been playing at the end of every episode. I hope you have enjoyed them, and I just want to put a public shout-out, a thank you to Robert Lefevre and our friend, the listener, Kamal. That wraps another week. Um, We take this one week at a time. I hope to be back next week. God bless you. Uh, Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Adios. Mm -hmm.